for you. Let me say thank you uh, to all of you for having me here this morning and uh, my, uh, inviting my family as well. Uh, we will be in the book of Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Um, and I do appreciate uh, Brother Ken reading through the entire chapter. It does help us out with context. I am going to uh, read the first, uh, five, uh, first five verses uh, once again. So Galatians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 5, the Word of God. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren which are with me under the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for gathering all of your people here this morning. As Brother Ken uh, prayed, Father, save sinners, build up your saints. Father, we ask this all for the sake of your glory and your kingdom. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, well... Back in Clarksville at our church, Covenant Baptist Church, I've been preaching through the letter to the Galatians. Uh, it has been a growing experience for me uh, as a uh, as a preacher uh, and personally, and so it has been a great blessing so far. And so hopefully this introductory sermon will stir up a desire in all of you to revisit this letter as well. Now since we are at the beginning of the letter, it will be beneficial for us to know the background to it, obviously. Who wrote it, when, and to whom it was written, and most importantly, why it was written. Now, the letter to the Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul probably dictated the letter to a scribe, but the letter begins with both his name and his title, Paul, an Apostle. Now, to further authenticate that the letter was, in fact, from Paul himself, if you read in chapter 6, verse 11... He says, ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. And so apparently Paul himself wrote the last bit of the letter. And the fact that it was written in large letters tells us that uh, Paul probably had an issue with his eyesight. Now as we go through the letter, we'll see why it was so important for Paul to demonstrate that this letter was truly from him and no one else. Now the time of the letter's writing is tied to whom it was written. Now, there are apparently two possibilities for the recipients of this letter. Uh, Both possible recipients are are in what is uh, now modern-day Turkey, but was considered the region of Galatia back in the first century. Now, the letter could be to the churches that were in either northern or southern Galatia. And an important clue to make this determination can be found in Acts chapter 15. In Acts 15, we read about the Jerusalem Council where the topic of circumcision came up and whether or not it was necessary for salvation. Now, the Jerusalem Council determined that it was not. And this issue is very pertinent to the subject matter of this letter, and yet Paul never mentions it. Now, it is almost impossible that Paul would not have referenced this because it would have strengthened the argument in in this letter, especially against those who were opposing him. 
Now, the Jerusalem Council took place around 48 to 49 AD, and Paul had evangelized the southern cities of Galatia, such as Iconium and Lystra, just prior to that time. And so, in light of this, we would hold to the view that the letter to the Galatians was written to the saints in southern Galatia around 48 AD. Now, the most important background issue to this letter is why the letter was written. Now, we all know the Apostle Paul wrote more than just letters that we find in the New Testament. And so, why did the Holy, uh, why did the Holy Spirit breathe out this letter to the Galatians? Why did this letter make it into the canon? Well, the letter to the Galatians deals with the very foundation of the Christian faith. In fact, it deals with the very promise that God gave in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had sinned against God. Now, the German reformer Martin Luther called this his own little epistle. He said that he had betrothed himself to it. Luther wrote a commentary on it that, that John Bunyan said outside of the Bible it was his favorite book. Now, this letter has also been called the Magna Carta of Christian Liberty. Now, the Magna Carta was a document initially written in 1215 and went through revisions, but it was where the civil liberties and freedoms were to be established in England under the threat of civil war by England's powerful barons against the king. It became a symbol of freedom from tyranny that the founding fathers of our own nation looked to for precedent. And so the letter to the, to the Galatians has been called the Charter of Freedom from Mankind's Greatest Tyrant, which is bondage to sin and therefore death. Now you might be tempted to say that Satan is the greatest tyrant of mankind, but Satan cannot damn us. He is the great tempter because it is sin that damns us, not Satan himself. Satan had to tempt Eve to sin against God to bring about her death. Satan didn't even have the power to physically cause Eve harm, until after Adam and Eve had sinned and brought the curse upon themselves and upon the world. You see, it is sin that damns us, it enslaves us, lies to us, oppresses us, brings misery, pain, destruction, and hatred. All the strife that we have in our own homes with our spouses and with our children is because of sin. All the wickedness and the suffering in our nation that we, see, that we see and that we hear in the news, unfortunately, quite often, is because of sin. All the evil that occurs across the globe, sex trafficking, drugs, corruption in the government, murder, slavery, it is all because of sin. Strife within true churches among the people of God is, you guessed it, it is because of sin. And worst of all, it is sin that separates image bearers of God from God himself temporally and for some people, unfortunately, eternally. It is sin that will bathe you eternally in the flames of God's justice. And it is sin that will prevent you from the incomparable bliss of living with Yahweh face to face in the person of Jesus Christ and with his people in paradise forever. And so what is it that the letter of Galatians deals with that sets us free from our greatest tyrant? Well, it is the God-given, unaltered gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that sets us free from the penalty, power, and eventually 
the very presence of sin. Now in the Old Testament, the gospel is pictured in the Exodus where God freed Israel from their bondage in Egypt. Now that was a physical salvation that pictured the true salvation in Christ, which was still to come. Now the Apostle Paul preached this gospel of Christ to the churches in Galatia during what was probably his first uh, missionary journey. Now not long after this, false brothers, as Paul calls them in chapter 2 verse 4, snuck into these churches and they started to preach a false gospel. They were teaching the Galatian Christians that faith alone in Christ alone was not enough to free them from the penalty of sin and justify them before God. In addition to faith in Christ, they had to be circumcised as required by the Mosaic Covenant. And if you read later on into the letter, chapter 5, verse 3, it says if you get circumcised, you are now bound to keep the entire Mosaic Covenant. And so instead of a faith alone in Christ alone salvation from sin, it was a faith in Christ plus a works of the law. Now these false brothers are known as Judaizers. Now understand that to be saved by God means to be made righteous in his sight and to be freed from the penalty and power of sin. By preaching a faith plus works of the law, they were placing the Galatian saints back under the bondage of salvation by works. Now, it is very important that as you go through this letter that you realize that Paul is preaching freedom from obeying the law to be saved. He is not preaching freedom from the law as a standard of righteous living. All right? I cannot emphasize this enough. If a sinner has to perfectly obey the law of God to obtain salvation, that sinner will live in perpetual bondage to the curse of the law because of their sin. We cannot save ourselves. Our sin prevents us from being able to obtain salvation through our own obedience to God. Now the law of God is not the problem. Sin is the problem. Romans 7 8 teaches us that sin uses the law against us. Now that doesn't make the law evil, that demonstrates that we're evil. And this is why I said that the gospel frees us from the tyranny of sin, not the tyranny of the law. And Romans seven twelve says the law of God is good, righteous, and holy. Now if we don't understand the distinction between the law and the gospel and the proper application of both to the Christian, at least two things are going to happen. First, we are going to misunderstand the letter to the Galatians. And second, we are going to misunderstand the Christian life and how we are to live it. That's why this letter is so important. Now, Martin Luther tried to gain God's acceptance through his own obedience and his own righteousness. And in the process, he discovered it was vain. He lived in perpetual bondage to the threat of death because of his sins, which he could not escape. He grew to hate his life. He hated God. But through the gospel of grace, he broke free from this bondage of sin and death, and he found liberty in the gospel of grace. Now, Satan used the Judaizers to destroy this freedom that we have in Christ, and they tried to place the Galatian saints back under the bondage of salvation by works, which only leads to death. 
And they did this by deceiving them to believe that righteousness does not come by faith alone, but again, by faith in their own works of righteousness. And so instead of just looking to Christ alone for their salvation as being completely and fully sufficient, they had to look at Christ, but then they had to look past him and then ultimately to themselves for their salvation. This is the dilemma that the Roman Catholic Church finds themselves in. They cannot just look to Christ for their hope and their comfort. Now what is really sad is that these Judaizers had been successful, or they were starting to be successful. The saints there in Galatia had allowed themselves to be deceived into believing a false gospel, and the result of this is catastrophic. I'm going to list some things. First, it dishonors Christ. It contradicts Scripture. It puts the success of Christ's cross into the hands of sinner and out of God's hands. It builds a false church. It keeps false converts damned. It puts true Christians back under bondage and fear. It causes true believers to stumble. It facilitates pride and self-righteousness, which in turn causes Christians to minimize the grace of God. This in turn degrades our gratitude towards God. And it also destroys any thought of assurance, which in turn destroys any hope or peace that we could have in this life. Now, Paul deals with these effects in more detail as you go through the letter. Now, that seems like a lot of background information for why this letter was written. But again, we need to properly understand this uh, to understand the whole book from beginning to end. Now, many Christians will come away from this letter to the Galatians saying that Paul is teaching that the law of God is to be done away with altogether in the Christian life. I've already alluded to this. And again, that would be a grave mistake. God's moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, never lacks a place in the life of humanity from before the fall all the way to the consummation and the coming of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, a correct interpretation of this letter will teach us the proper law or proper role of both the law and the gospel in the Christian life. Now, I would say it is even more clearly set forth in the letter to the Romans. And so, actually, the letter to the Romans is a great commentary or great help uh, while you're reading the letter uh, to the Galatians. Now, with the a decent understanding of the background of this letter, the fact that God had the Apostle Paul write and send this letter to the Galatians is itself a reason to rejoice and praise God. This letter is a testimony to the love, grace, and mercy of God towards his people. Let me explain. If you, if you love a person or you love a people dearly, and you find, that, you find out that someone has come to harm them, what do you do? You go to their rescue. And that's what the letter to the Galatians is. It is a rescue mission. The false gospel being preached by the Judaizers would result in great harm to God's people there in Galatia, as we just read. The Judaizers were wolves who had come in to cause the sheep harm, and there is no way God would stand by idle and let wolves come in and harm his people. Listen to Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 39. He says, And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, 
that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. When Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, he meant it. The Apostle Paul is commissioned by the Lord to drive out the wolves from among his people there in Galatia. Now this ought to be a great comfort to us as well, because if he did it for his people then, then he will absolutely do it for his people even today, even in Paris, Tennessee. He will not stand by while wolves come in to devour us. Now, the fact that the letter is given in the spirit of a rebuke should not discourage us. Actually, instead, it further enforces that the letter is sent by the love of God for his people. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. It says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now what about the mercy and the grace of God in this letter? Well, as we will see, even though it was the Judaizers that had come into these churches to cause the Galatian Christians harm and to cause them to stumble, the saints there were not without guilt. All right, the fact that the letter is given in a spirit of rebuke demonstrates that the Christians there they were culpable for yielding to this false gospel. Verse 6 actually tells us that by accepting a false gospel, they were not just guilty of false doctrine, but in fact they were starting to desert God himself. And so by accepting this non-gospel, or what I have come to call it as I've been preaching through the letter, the gospel of death, this, the saints in these Galatian churches were walking awfully close to the sin of spiritual adulter- adultery, if not completely guilty of it. However, here's the good news, even in light of this, the mercy and grace of God toward his people is what enabled their forgiveness and their restoration. What is ironic is that even though they started to yield to a false gospel, it was the true gospel that kept them and facilitated the rescue. This in and of itself should cause us to cherish Christ and the true gospel, that even if we are faithless, Christ is faithful and will not abandon his gospel promises to his people. Alright, so let's let's go ahead and dig into these first five introductory verses in this letter. Now, in the very first verse, Paul is having to substantiate the authenticity of his apostleship. Now, Paul makes it very clear that his apostleship is genuine and that it is not from any human authority or human institution. He was made an apostle directly by God. There isn't even a mediating source between God and Paul's apostolic office. And this gives us some insight to the tone of the letter. Paul starts out on the offensive. He is upset. He has been attacked by the Judaizers, and the Galatians have apparently bought into it. And this is one of the ways the Judaizers intended to deceive the Galatian Christians. In order to undermine the gospel taught by Paul... They had to undermine the man himself. 
Now, as you go through the beginning of the letter, you will see that Paul spends quite a bit of time explaining the background of his salvation, the confirmation of his apostleship, and thereby the gospel that he was preaching. Now, this tactic that was being used against Paul is still being used against Christians today. If we are faithful Christians, okay, and I emphasize faithful, then at some point those in our sphere of life are going to figure out that we are Christians if we haven't already told them. All right, Our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, our friends, if you are living a faithful Christian life, it will be impossible to avoid. Now understand that if you are sharing the gospel with others, one of the primary ways the enemy will attack the gospel is by, is by getting someone to attack you personally. Now, Paul wasn't being attacked because he was living this, this horrible or overt, sinful, wicked life. His office was being attacked in order to, uh, to attack the gospel that he was sharing. And Paul, as we'll see later, was able to defend himself. He was a man of integrity who could establish what he was claiming about himself. And so we, too, must live with integrity so that when we are attacked to undermine the gospel we can defend it by the life that we are living. The more we fail to live up to what we claim to be, the more ammunition we give to the enemy. Now, this is a good example from the Bible that Christianity is not a fatalistic religion. Now, as Calvinists, as, as you guys might be familiar with from, from personal experience, we are sometimes accused of being fatalistic as if our view of God's sovereignty requires it. But this is obviously not the case. Paul didn't just say, oh well, God is sovereign over all things, so I'm really not going to worry about these accusations against me and my uh, uh, being an apostle of the gospel that I'm preaching. No one can restrain God's hand, so there's no real concern or consequence to the Judaizers spreading a false gospel, all the elect are still going to be saved, so I'm really not going to worry about it. This letter itself demonstrates that God will not allow us to take that approach even in light of His sovereignty. Right. Now, are all the elect going to be saved? Yes, they are. But not through ignoring wolves coming in among the sheep to spread damning errors. As Christians, we are to be passionately engaged, like, like Patrick Kent said, not the frozen chosen, right? We are to be passionately engaged in spiritual warfare and the battle for souls. Mm -hmm. Paul is terribly concerned for God's people there in Galatia. He doesn't want a false gospel to cause the saints there in Galatia to stumble, and he doesn't want a false gospel being spread around unbelievers, now notice that he writes not to a church in Galatia, but to the churches, plural, in Galatia. And so this false gospel was spreading from individual churches in certain cities to other churches in different cities throughout the region. Now it is one thing to imagine that maybe a church or a couple of churches that receive the true gospel are turning to a false gospel. But you would think there is no way multiple churches in multiple cities throughout the region would be susceptible to a false gospel. But what this letter demonstrates is that it is possible. 
And so what it does is it teaches us not to be spiritually lazy or to let our guard down. We would be foolish to think that we are immune to doctrinal and spiritual error. They had received the gospel from the Apostle Paul himself, and according to chapter 3, verse 5, had miracles performed among them, yet they were still vulnerable. And so as you go through this letter, you should not, we should not become self-righteous and think to, ourse- think to ourselves, well, how could they? Mm-hmm. Right? It should cause us to realize our own vulnerability and be all the more watchful. We need to be staying in the Word of God on a regular basis. Not just on Sunday, right? But even throughout the week, prayerfully. Now, in addition to defending his apostleship, Paul is going to once again proclaim the true gospel. In these first five verses, he is already setting forth major components of the gospel and what God intends to accomplish through it. In verse 1, we are told what Jesus did. He died and was resurrected. In verse 4, we are told why he died and was resurrected. It was for our sins. And then we are told why Jesus died for our sins. It was to deliver us from this present evil age. And so here is the ultimate rescue plan. This present evil age is a reference to the entire cursed fallen world from the time of the fall in the garden all the way up until now, until the end of the age. So God rescues us not just from our own sins, but from the entire idolatrous world system whose God is Satan. God may have destroyed the Tower of Babel, but the world is still hell-bent on living and ruling over itself without God. When man makes himself the measure of all things, and when man puts himself on the throne where only God belongs, misery and suffering is the only result. The sea of human blood spilt, or excuse me, spilled by Marxism is, is just one good example. And so not only does it result in hell on earth, we know from scripture that it will one day result in eternal hell. Why? Because one day, one glorious day, Jesus is going to return to the earth and he is going to destroy sin and this present evil age forever. And the only way God delivers any sinner from this present evil age is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. Now, finally, we are informed that all of this came from the goodwill of our Heavenly Father. This did not come from ourselves. Grace does not come from us. Grace comes from God. And so the gospel is ultimately God-centered. It is not man-centered, though we benefit from it gloriously. In just the first five introductory verses of the letter, God the Father is mentioned three times, and Jesus Christ is mentioned twice. Now, what you will discover is that the false gospel of faith plus works makes the gospel more man-centered and less God-centered. Uh, my pastor coming to Baptist Church, Pastor Ron Miller, uh, he put it another way once before. He said, if you add to the gospel, you're actually subtracting from it. Mm-hmm. Grace can only come from God. 
And so if you add anything to it, it means God's grace is lacking. It means God's grace is insufficient. And so you are taking away from it. Now because the, Galat- <clears throat> because the letter of, to the Galatians is dealing with the distortion of the true gospel, I think it is only fitting that you approach the letter with a concise yet full definition of the gospel. Now, the definition that I'm about to give is not the only definition. That's not what I'm saying. All right, It is a definition. It is one way to put forth the gospel. All right, And so what is it? God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners. Jesus lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to atone for sin. He was buried and physically resurrected from the dead three days later. Therefore, God has promised, God has promised that anyone who turns away from their sin repents and puts their trust, faith, solely in Jesus Christ as their Savior in God, will be forgiven of all of their sins and will be granted eternal life, never to lose it. Now, there are three parts of the gospel that are crucial for us to identify. The first is the person of Christ. The Son of God, He is fully God and fully man, Two distinct natures, unmixed, yet inseparable in the one person, Jesus the Nazarene. The second part of the gospel is the work of Christ. Jesus' sinless life, his vicarious death on the cross for his people, and his resurrection from the dead. The third is the offer of Christ for salvation. The means by which a person receives the gift of salvation, which is through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any obedience on our part to the law of God, completely separate from anything we can do. The pers- it's important for us to realize the person and work of Christ is not the whole gospel. The way in which a person receives Christ is a necessary part of the good news as well. We know this because this is the main aspect of the gospel that has been distorted by the Judaizers that Paul is dealing with in this letter. Look, folks, the Judaizers were telling everyone that Jesus was the divine Son of God. He was the Messiah long foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. Right? They were propagating that. That is sound biblical truth. And so it wasn't the who of salvation that they got wrong, it was the how. God's offer of eternal life in Christ is is free, and since Jesus is free, he can only be received through faith. Now, what should our attitude to all of this be? Well, unfortunately, our default as modern Americans is, don't give me what I already have that's boring. All right, In America, we are always looking for the next new thing. Right? I just got the new iPhone 50. I've had it for about two months. Uh, I'm already getting bored with it, so I'm already going to pre-order the new one that Apple is already advertising. And I haven't even gotten the one I just bought paid off. Right? That is the mindset of the American culture. What is the next new thing? 
We can never have this attitude towards the gospel. Now, many churches have, and so what do they do? They keep uh, coming up with new tricks. They have new programs. Anything they can do, events to keep American Christians, goats and sheep, entertained. Mm-hmm. All right, I remember Pastor John Miller, of the first pastor who planted our church, he said, whatever you win people with, that is what you win them to. And when churches do this, what happens is they are no longer churches or they are on their way to no longer becoming true churches of God. We never get past the gospel in the Christian life. We are saved by the gospel. We battle Satan with the gospel. We persevere in our, in our sanctification through the gospel. Our hope of redemption and glory is from the gospel. Our assurance and therefore peace is from the gospel. Our assurance that God never stops loving us is through the gospel. Our love for God and our fellow man is grounded in the gospel. The only reason God accepts our worship right now is because of the gospel. There is no way to live the Christian life apart from it. But it is only the true gospel that does all of this. A false gospel destroys it. Right. <clears throat> and so that means preserving and defending the true gospel is and always will be a primary part of the church's life. Yeah. As individual Christians and then as a whole, as the church. A false, distorted gospel coming into the church, this church should be a greater concern to you than having your constitutional rights violated. You can be upset about both, but the gospel should always have our primary and higher concern. Apart from the true gospel, we are Satan's children, we are not God's, and this, this, we, we are not a church, we become a synagogue of Satan. The gospel is the spiritual ground beneath our feet that will lead us all the way home to glory when Christ returns. Let's pray. Father, we are susceptible to false doctrine. We are susceptible to the influence of the culture that we live in. Father, grant us discernment and wisdom from your word to identify false teaching and those who intentionally try to spread it. Help us to never let the gospel grow dull in our hearts or allow ourselves to grow weak in our gratitude for your Son. We ask this all in his name. Amen.